I want to welcome you back to another episode of What I Branded Pivotal. Since these interview style segments tackle impactful CPG industry topics and lessons from the business leaders that live it every day. While gut health has transitioned from just another trending topic to an important aspect of health that impacts everything from energy levels to immunity, it also brought with it tons of new market growth and product development within the food, beverage, and supplement CPG categories. Because of this, there's little doubt in my mind that consumers are certainly more aware and educated about gut health, but even someone that's been increasingly fascinated for most of his career with unlocking the valuable intersection of gut microbiome, technology, and consumer packaged goods, I still get frequently tripped up with the ever-evolving advancements, new marketplace linkages, and gaps in knowledge that those create about the consumer health space. So I decided again to ask my good friend, Noah Moredes, who's a scientific researcher and founder of the boutique consulting firm, GenBiome, that focuses on the intersecting areas of personalized nutrition, gut microbiome, genetic testing, CPG, and digital health. He's undoubtedly the perfect person to add an exceptional amount of depth to an insightful conversation covering many important trends and disruptive forces that will most certainly impact the future of the microbiome space. Along with catching you up on the evolution of the gut health CPG category, we go a step further and talk about some exciting edges of product innovation and explain who might hold the keys to the next wave of microbiome ingredient innovation. We also explain why governmental programs like SNAP and the emergence of food as medicine is pushing large retailers to start fully embracing a health and wellness positioning. Additionally, how personalization layers like registered dietitians, wearable data, and artificial intelligence will play a growing role in the category's future. Plus, we dive into the possible categorical impacts from GLP-1. Finally, we tackle an often overlooked part of gut health, the small intestine, which reminds me that I want to quickly show some love to Nimble Science for supporting this piece of content. Due to the complexity, cost, and invasiveness of endoscopy, our understanding of the small intestinal microbiome significantly lags behind our understanding of the colon, yet gaining access to multiomic data from the small intestine could very likely be the key to unlocking a new wave of gut microbiome product innovation. So to reach the unreachable, Nimble Science developed its Simba system that utilizes a single-use ingestible passive capsule that allows for the non-invasive endoscopic quality sampling of small intestinal contents. You'll hear more about the Simba capsule in our conversation, but I'm also going to leave the Nimble Science website link in this content's description. But without further delay, here is the recent conversation I had with my good buddy, Noah Veredes. I think there's a rare group uh, that can not only play the supporting actor role, uh, but also transition into being the leading man. And maybe for those that have no idea what the heck I'm talking about, Noah actually joined me on a, like a smaller guest segment last year. I don't know when last year, but it was a piece revolved around probiotics and kind of the CFU commoditization and a bunch of different things going on there. But overall, I mean, just want to thank you, Noah, welcome you back to the show and, and just glad that you're going to be the one that we explore this interesting topic with. Thanks so much, Josh, for having me back. Um, loved, loved the first kind of like uh, session we had together and um, looking forward to, I think, 
having some microbiome components with what we're going to chat about, um, but also kind of like thinking a little bit more broadly and unpacking some, I think, some big picture trends that um, really relate to a lot of the work that you're doing as well within the broader CPG kind of like functional functional health spaces. So yeah, excited to chat. Yeah. So just to kind of further set the tone, I guess, for the content, just for the audience, because maybe it's going to be a little bit longer piece of content than normal. Um, we're going to run through, I think, a selection of maybe important trends or disruptive forces that are, at least in our mind, like most certainly going to impact the future of, like Noah said, microbiome, but it's also just a kind of number of different things that people can you know, take the information probably applied in their own category, even if maybe they aren't necessarily uh, really deep into that space, maybe they're adjacent to it or whatever. But um, first, maybe we need to kind of quickly, you know, set the stage of explaining, you know, where we were before, maybe just broadly, and then, you know, where we are now within kind of the category. Maybe you can add some context, at least from my understanding, is that definitely then, and this is, probably when, uh, when I became, uh, you know, from a consumer and transitioning into the workforce a little bit, it was this whole space as a whole microbiome. If we look at that as like a category or as a space, like it was really the supplements were the form factor. Yep. You most likely got those products or at least the most advanced products in specialty retail. And then they were really kind of focused on, you know, singular ingredient or probably through the lens of probiotics, I would imagine that was kind of where all that was at. And then kind of where we are now, and that's to date myself, that's probably 15 or so years uh, later, tons of diverse formats in terms of the category overall, uh, food, beverage, you know, different, um, you know, just different kind of delivery forms. Uh, you have pretty much all retail that is at one point or another covering or, or carrying a number of different advanced products in the space. And then just the products as a whole seem to be looking at it from a number of different ways. They're, it's no longer just through this one lens. It's kind of multifunctional or kind of looking at different accesses or how things interact together and kind of trying to go through all those types of things. Again, I don't know if I overgeneralize some of that or if I miss some of it, but is that kind of how you see the space from where it was, where it is now? hundred percent. You know, I think, I think, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago, I don't even think microbiome was a term. It was really just probiotics. If, you know, people, and this was like, you know, the, the very small subset, I wouldn't even call them biohackers. I think it was just more of like this super healthy, you know, set of people of probably a wide range of, of age and demographics, but probably typically, you know, older, um, and little higher socioeconomically. And they were really, you know, taking, taking the, the, the few probiotic skews that were on the market. Um, and I would say there was probably, you know, kind of some, some key trends. One is that, you know, you started to have the initial companies that were starting to be built, you know, within the, the consumer space to really build out um, probiotics, you know, being not maybe behind um, any type of like shelf or counter, like, maybe not behind the pharmacy or, or sold through a pharmacist directly or sold directly to a healthcare practitioner with a single strain or a, you know, a, a smaller formulation of strains. And not only that, but just being strain focused versus, you know, what I would call polybiotic or multibiotic focused formulations, um, both in capsule gummy, and then obviously moving into, you know, functional CPG. And so kind of like fast forward to today, if you go walk through, you know, a grocery store of any kind, whether it's in the natural channel or mass market, you know, 
the term microbiome is going to be or gut health or probiotic or prebiotic. And, and now we're starting to hear postbiotic is going to be sprinkled on so many different products, you know, throughout kind of like the set. Um, so it's evolved from, you know, capsules with a probiotic focus, primarily GI health, whether it's immune, women's health, you know, stress, mood, and then obviously functional food and beverages. Um, and then obviously the, the increase in the combination of those, you know, in, into different and unique formulations, um, you know, pro plus pre, maybe all three of them, um, or just some of them are starting to have postbiotics by itself as like a standalone hero ingredient um, to support a health claim. So it's evolved substantially. And so I think Finns has done a great job, you know, both, um, you know, Scott and I um, presented uh, earlier this year at a, at a kind of like a future of microbiome session. And the term that we both use was, you know, the move from the move to multi. Um, and so I think that's like, if you're going to use only one word and even a suffix of something, it would be, you know, everything is multi. Which makes a lot of sense because I think that, again, where the, we'll call it the nucleus of, of kind of excitement within, you know, I'm going to use like a broad sense, like the supplement industry, but really that has in itself, like kind of taken on a mind of its own. Like what is a supplement? What isn't a supplement? Like, can yep. you um, say that food and beverages are supplements or, or whatever? I think ultimately the consumer is kind of switching out those things, blurring lines naturally based on how they just kind of are trying to solve certain problems. But I am always like super excited towards like some of the, what I would consider like the, the polar ends or, or kind of the edges of the supplement industry, the ones that people yeah. maybe are like, I don't know if that supplements like things that are, you know, maybe closer to like pharma type of applications or, or kind of playing around with some of those things. Maybe that's not even from just the actual product ingredients. Maybe that's also just the way they're building up an ecosystem or a platform. You know, I think about that from food and beverage. I also think about that. You mentioned like women's health, but I think even past that, maybe, you know, beauty as well and how that's playing yep. a role and everything. It's like where those intersections or maybe where they seem to be like playing towards these like, you know, polar ends of the spectrum. Like there's just a lot of just really interesting activity that's happening, you know, from a, you know, raising a bunch of capital and, and that's obviously stunted by the time frame in which we are in, but like, you're still yeah. seeing deals getting made. You're still seeing, you know, raises of capital in those areas. Um, people are super excited about those spaces. And it just seems like we are just scratching the surface for like where those kind of areas are going to really emerge into. But I think a lot of this comes down to probably the understanding of just, you know, the gut as a whole and how that has so many connections with so many different things. And then, you know, naturally brands and uh, the whole kind of commercial capital uh, market uh, kind of interconnectivity to everything like they all naturally start to get excited because the money starts to flow around and people start to get interested to kind of tell these different stories. And again, it's no longer through that like one lens anymore. There's so many things that are happening that for me, again, I always use these terms like I'm going to be around for the next 30 years. Like these are the things that get me super excited because I look 10 years forward. I look 20 years forward and I go, these things are going to make massive increases in the overall market, which if I'm you know playing in that market, I'm going to naturally benefit from too. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things. I don't know if you see it from that angle or not, but like, I definitely have been super excited by a lot of these things lately. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way to frame how the microbiome space has evolved. And I would kind of, I would think of it in, in a, a few distinct buckets as far as, you know, why, why, how, why, and how has it evolved from 
just being very probiotic centric, you know, somewhat niche, very like singular channel to, you know, obviously where it is today, you know, touching so many different areas from within our body to like you mentioned, skin and, and pet and all these other things. And I think if you kind of like put it, put it into kind of high level buckets, I think you have, you know, scientific advancements, um, you have, you know, formulation technology advancements, and then you have social. And, and to some degree, I, I actually think the social is the strongest reason why the space has had such an evolution. I, I think the science has been important and the growth of like novel strains and new prebiotics and postbiotics and, you know, linking all of these functional ingredients to a variety of functional health conditions that are legitimately contributing to people living better, healthier lives. But fundamentally, what's happened is, is the conversations that once used to be taboo around gut health, bloating, you know, bowel regularity, you know, Belly Welly, I think did a great job of like destigmatizing IBS with their hot girls of IBS campaign, you know, by using a billboard, by using, and it's really funny because they used um, a media channel that for many was, you know, maybe not uh, as, as, as used, like most early stage brands initially would think, well, I'm going to try and use a digital channel, but they said, let's go old school. Let's go back to something in places that people are going to see, you know, billboards out of home type stuff. That's going to like, as somebody's driving, they're going to, they're going to see it. So I think it's, I think the social element has been incredibly important as far as destigmatization. Number one, number two, I think within kind of that social construct, our lifestyles have changed a lot. Um, you know, our lifestyles have become busier, hectic. The stress level, I think, is something that's constantly cited across like every single consumer insights report you see as far as what is the consumer most worried about and trying to optimize in their life. And stress is one of them. And then so you have all these corollaries to how stress impacts the gut, whether it's, you know, shifting the bacteria in your gut into a non-healthy way whether it's not having enough time to eat properly, right? Because we're, we're moving at a much faster pace. So we don't have time to sit down and eat three kind of square meals a day that are probably way more nutrient dense, right? So it's opening up this functional category. And then, um, and then also I think, uh, you know, you have a different demographic, like, you know, whether it's, it's Gen Z and millennials are shifting away from being very capsule VMS focused to, you know, liking to consider, they, they consider that food and beverage products can be considered supplements for them. So these social forces mixed with, um, you know, science and technology and formulation capability forces are really kind of coming together to, to massively force multiply this now burgeoning category that is the microbiome. Um, and I think, you know, when you, again, when you think about pushing out beyond the human body into, you know, like the insides of the human body into skin uh, and into pet, you know, pets, I think something that's really interesting because if you look at, you know, some of the consumer insights data, um, pet owners, you know, when they're looking for products for, you know, their dog or their cat are looking for strains that they know of. Right. Um, and whether that's the right strain is a sign is a whole separate scientific conversation, but this concept of familiarity and then also of wanting to treat their pets in the same way that they would want to be treated has obviously created, you know, these, these businesses that, that have had exits like Nom Nom, you know, for, for example, exiting to Mars for a billion dollars. They had a whole microbiome testing side of things. And even, and even Embark, which is, you know, was like the first like 
kind of like pet DNA testing company is starting to experiment uh, with, you know, pet microbiome testing and kind of like pet microbiome products. Um, and there's, there's probably a, a myriad of reasons for that. So um, it's, it's really an exciting time. And I think also it's going to be dictated by, by brands um, and how they're going to position their product uh, as far as where the segments are going to, you know, see the most growth. Um, you know, we're definitely seeing a ton of growth in functional beverage, you know, with the microbiome digestive health angle. It's, you know, one of the fastest growing categories, um, you know, primarily led by, you know, the likes of Olipop. So um, it's going to be exciting to watch. Um, and I think on the topic of skin, I actually think the skin, the, I, I think the skin in, in the women's health vaginal microbiome areas are actually the most interesting, um, potentially from an innovation perspective. Um because both of those, like remedying both of those conditions is, is solving what's, what I would call a dysbiosis problem. So it means that you have the, the wrong type of bacteria that have kind of like, you know, built up a little, you know, a little colony. And if you somehow figure out a way um, to remove them and then remediate and replace it with the right bacteria, you're probably going to start solving some of those problems. Um, and, and those are areas, again, that are super top of mind with consumers. Um, you know, and examples like S Biomedic was acquired. Um, and then you have, you know, uh, companies like Seed, you know, spinning out Vanguard technology uh, into a biologics company called Luca um, to really like try and target recurrent UTIs with some Vanguard, you know, technology from the University of Maryland. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, to your point, there's, there's so many things going on that you have to also take a look. And I'm glad, and this is probably why I enjoy talking to you. I think because you look at it from both perspectives. I think there's, you know, societal, uh, cultural kind of things happening. There is obviously, you know, things that are manipulating how fast those uh, messages get disseminated out yeah. um, and how fast that can kind of move. And then there's obviously the, you know, the clinical advancement side of things that like, there's just a ton of really interesting stuff going on that all of this stuff seems to kind of come together into such a weird, um, interesting pot that then produces so many opportunities for this space as a whole. And I think to your point, like all that multi or, you know, whatever it's like, that really is the special sauce. That's really where this is all going. There's so many different things going on, but you can't think about it through like the original lens of, of this like constraint driven aspect of the category of like, we only look at it through this perspective, which maybe transitions into something that I, I think you had mentioned to me, it was like a year, maybe more than ago, and it was around a a technology where basically you were, you were I think you were swallowing a capsule, and basically that capsule was going through um, the small intestine and through everything, and basically then you're retrieving it, and then that in itself was giving you a um, some set of information that then you could you know essentially act on. But like I think all of that goes through maybe the the small intestine as a as a whole, and maybe that's something that you know, gets maybe bucketed into the gut health or not or whatever, but like the segmentation out of that, like maybe there's a lot of important stuff going on that is just starting to scratch the surface, right? Totally. And I think you raise a really good point about, you know, what happens when a category maybe starts to get saturated a little bit? Um, and also what are some of the reasons why, you know, at least with the microbiome in the GI, why have we focused only on what would be considered the lower gut or the colon? And there's, the reason is, is because looking at what's going on in the small intestinal microbiome is really, it has been really challenging up until, you know, very recently. 
And it's been challenging because it's really hard to get to. Um, and so usually it's, it's only uh, due to an endoscopy, which means you got to, you know, go under anesthesia and, you know, get cut. And like, like the, the chances of that happening is, is very rare. And there's only been a very, very few actually microbiome studies that have tried to look at, you know, uh, endoscopy based uh, sampling to, to look at the microbiome. But more importantly, I think, you know, the microbiome space uh, due to technology innovation. And if you think again, if we take a big step back, like what is propelled, um, what is propelled functional CPG, functional VMS, what has propelled our entire world forward is really technology and it's been technological advancements. And so now, you know, there's a company called Nimble Science that has, you know, their Simba capsule, which is basically something the size of like, you know, a Tylenol that you swallow. And um, what it allows you to do is collect basically a sample in the small intestine multi-omically. And so why does that matter? And, and, and what's the value there, I think, to the microbiome space is now it, it opens up potential new product innovation opportunities um, uh, in, in a myriad of other things. But I think for the sake of our conversation, a lot of product innovation opportunities for the small intestine, right? Because what's happening in the small intestine is a lot of like um, really like digestion and absorption of, you know, main macronutrients, particularly sugars, um, you know, is there. Um, and it's a very unique, different microbiome kind of composition than what's in our, our lower gut or in our colon. So being able to finally look at that is going to allow, you know, companies to start, you know, ones that are focusing on SIBO or potentially on IBS or on Crohn's disease to start to get a signal as far as what probiotic strains or what prebiotics might, you know, potentially be interacting with the microbiome there. You know, we used to like all of the companies that are selling uh, a probiotic or a symbiotic based solution have designed these capsules. And it's like one of their selling points is like, it's not going to get destroyed in the stomach. It's not going to open up in the small intestine. We know it opens up in the colon and that's great but maybe there's a purpose now for them to design something to open up in the small intestine. And so being able to have a simpler way to collect that data um, is going to, I think, open up potentially a whole new product development, uh, you know, opportunity um, as well as maybe new type of like direct consumer diagnostic tests and whatnot. And so it could be a, a pretty vanguard, you know, opportunity from an innovation perspective. And this company in particular has done, you know, proof of concept work with, you know, prominent B2B ingredient companies in the space, um, like Lalamon, for example, and it's gaining traction because, um, you know, they are, uh, particularly the B2B ingredient companies are realizing that trying to do anything new in the, in the lower GI, it's, it's pretty crowded, right? You know, there's the companies that have staked their, their territory in probiotic strains. There's companies that have staked their territory in prebiotics and in postbiotics. And so, you know, what can they do next? Um, what can be a, a vanguard ingredient to create a whole new product category to, to fuel growth? So I think that's, that's a really exciting example of, you know, technology, simplicity, um, and also just having something that has been validated to be equal to the gold standard, which is an endoscopy. So, you know, the, the quality of what you're getting uh, is going to be super high. Um, and then I think the final thing is, you know, everyone is looking to try and find these new magic strains, right? That have this functional value. And, you know, this capsule in particular allows you to almost like, uh, you know, 
gather, you know, some strains and keep it in a protective anaerobic shell, meaning oxygen won't get in. And so it preserves these very sensitive bacteria that um, are able to live in the small intestine in parts of our GI tract because the oxygen levels are low. And once you kind of, if you open it up and expose it, they're kind of just going to disappear because they're super sensitive. So being able to also like potentially discover new strains um, is really interesting. And actually within the, the B2B microbiome ingredient kind of like space, anaerobic strains is like one of the hot trending innovation kind of uh, avenues because um, some, some of these strains are the ones that have been shown in a lot of like human clinical research to be efficacious for a variety of conditions. Yeah, I think about that in in a disruptive sense because you know you mentioned you know lower gut and definitely a lot of these companies that that own the most prominent I guess probiotic strains. I mean they are massive companies uh, yeah. by any measure. Um, so to your point, it's very hard I think a lot of times to break through with anything, even if you have the most unique, interesting yeah. stuff out there, like you know business plague filled or, or I guess tactics and war strategy and all that, how, you know, naturally people are either going to try to take you out or figure out a way to like, you know, minimize what you're doing. And, and it's like kind of a, you know, it's an, it's a gnarly kind of uh, consideration a lot of times, especially for startups to kind of go against these larger companies. But then when you kind of refocus or reframe this into something else, then all of a sudden there's a blue ocean or, or this greenfield that you're like, okay, let's try something new. Let's maybe that we become, you know, complementary to some of the things they're doing, or maybe there's something that, that, that works together. We're not necessarily thought of as, you know, totally a foe where we're kind of some frenemy or something like that in some of these companies, which maybe gets into transitioning into like, you know, another kind of area that's super disruptive, I think right now. And, and you, you know, mentioned about maybe some second order effects or, or things that are going on is like, you know, GLP one as a whole and how that interacts with just the microbiome space as a whole. I mean, I'll take it and totally broaden it into just a lot of categories and how, you know, you, you definitely need to figure out where are you positioned within this new, you know, framework of, we'll just call it weight management or weight wellness yeah. or whatever that is. But like, you have to figure out like, are you going to be a friend or a foe? One, um, kind of where are you going to play on this whole spectrum? And then secondly, do you have the ability to kind of work within some off-ramp applications where then like as people are making lifestyle changes and people are starting to come off those drugs, do you then have the opportunity to be, you know, another solution that kind of keeps them on that uh, straight and narrow or, or something like that in a different set? Because I don't think anybody wants to be on those drugs for a long period of time. Obviously, if it's a uh, type two, but diabetes situation or like an extreme obesity, uh, situation, like you have to be on that thing a lot longer than the typical person, but I don't think anybody, you know, wants to be on these things forever. So then it gives you these opportunities to figure out like, where do you position yourselves? And, and again, I'm talking about this from, you know, protein companies, these could be, you know, people mm -hmm. offering greens, people offering multivitamins, whatever it is. Like, I think all of a sudden people are going to fundamentally change, uh, in some big way. And again, we're only scratching the surface probably about where we are a GLP-1. If this is even 10 years down the line and it grows into, you know, maybe 10% of the population, you still have to think there's probably still another 30 or 40% of the population in America that could take this thing. It's not even anywhere even near that point. So then you think all these shifts and what can you do? Like it's, 
it is super interesting that like these massive CPG brands, you know, massive retailers, everybody's looking at and trying to figure out, can we model this out? Can we figure out what this actually means? And what are the impacts? Because all of a sudden you're going to see these second order effects start to play in there. And if you're not positioned appropriately, you're going to be in trouble. And I know that's uh, because we're thinking about the future. Like I don't have to state that like, yes, today, maybe there's not as much impacts that are going to be you know, hugely affecting your business. But again, if you want to be appropriately positioned long-term, you have to consider how disruptive this particular set of, you know, just drugs or even like further biologics, biologics, like that whole situation, like this can all evolve in such a way that like, we're, we're only scratching the surface. I, I completely agree. And, you know, one of the things that, I think is so important is to keep your aperture wide and to, to kind of like understand some of these, you know, asymmetric, um, you know, competitive forces. Uh, and it's something that I've always like kept an eye on. Um, and, and I think, you know, as it relates to, to GLP one, you know, specifically, well, I guess take a step back as it relates to the microbiome field overall. Um, one thing I've, I've noticed is that, you know, when a, when a field gets very popular um, and, and you start to see growth, you know, sometimes you, you stay very focused and you think that this party is never going to end and that there's nothing that can be as superior. And the microbiome was a space where, you know, there was just scientific study after scientific study saying it's linked to this, 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 and this, and this, and there's all these associations. And, and some has moved beyond associations to, you know, efficacy, you know, like the stuff that series in, in rebiotics through fairing have done with C. diff. Um, but as it relates to metabolic health and weight loss, you know, these two categories, as you know, I know you're, you know, intimately knowledgeable have, have been probably for the last three to five years, like within kind of innovation conversations, like these are like the hot areas that everyone was like kind of counting on. And, and unfortunately in my experience, the, the VMS and functional health space doesn't, doesn't really, um, I think sometimes see what's going on within digital health and pharma. Um, and so GLP one came, you know, for, for some people they're like, wow, it just came out of nowhere. And now it's like, it's being massively disruptive, but this drug had been, you know, this, this biologic, you know, has been around for a while and, but it's, it's kind of found, it's found its path in, in weight loss and in metabolic health. And so all of a sudden these plans that, you know, all these companies have had, whether it's in the microbiome space or the protein space or the functional, you know, CPG, uh, VMS space, they're, they're scrambling, right? Because the, at least in the short term, the efficacy of GLP ones, uh, sometimes can be, can be better than, you know, a supplement or a functional CPG product. And so I think you raise a great point to, to say, well, now where do we fit? Uh, and what are these second order effects? And I think there's some pretty clear second order effects. And I know you touched upon it in some of your other content, but um, I think one is, you know, people on GLP ones. Well, first of all, there's a massive difference in um, duration, staying on GLP ones, you know, uh, belief of self self belief of efficacy between people that are taking GLP ones for weight loss and for type two diabetes. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think what's important to think about is, is that, you know, that one of the biggest second order effects is that people 
are, it's changing their, their body's, you know, chemistry to say, I don't want certain types of foods anymore. I don't want other certain products. And so this, the second or third order effect is them starting to holistically reevaluate what do they want to do as far as their wellness regimen. And so I think it's going to take some deep consumer insights work on the part of brands to say, okay, um, maybe we're not going to be able to go head to head against a GLP one, but at some point to your point, people aren't going to stay on this forever and they're not going to stay in it forever for either side effects or for a cost factor. Right. I mean, there's, there's state Medicaid, you know, organizations that are completely stopping, you know, any new GLP ones because it's, it's literally bankrupting them. Right. Cause it's so expensive. Um, so I, I think in the microbiome space in particular, I think there's, first of all, there's the conversation around the microbiome and certain microbiome based ingredients producing GLP ones, uh, within the gut. So there's that. And then, you know, there's certain brands that are, that are marketing themselves as, you know, nature's Ozempec or like a natural form to that. And there's probably regulatory things that, you know, depending on how risky you want to get, it's, you know, you can, you can go down that route and it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Um, but I, I do think from a microbiome perspective and probably from a functional product perspective, that there's definitely what I would consider an adjunctive approach to take and to start thinking about how to, how does this product force multiply the beneficial effects of GLP ones or for the subset of, there's like, there's still is a large subset of consumers that they're, they're not drug people and they never will be, but they want to look after their metabolic health and they want to look at, and they want to like support a healthy weight or they want to lose weight. And so I think really starting to do a lot of very detailed targeting is important, but I see adjunctive applications as being super high. And then I also see as marketing as, is like, you know, how can you maintain all the positive progress you made once you transition off of a GLP one? Um, and finally, potentially there could be something adjunctively around, you know, our product not only helps you keep that weight off from the GLP one, but it's going to also reduce the side effects of GI distress or anything else that's going on in the body. So it's, it's still the early innings, but the one thing I know about pharma is, is once they see a cash machine, I mean, we saw this with the opioid crisis, right? You know, Purdue Pharma saw the amount of cash that they were able to make. And they did everything to further optimize its response. And, and unfortunately in the case of opioids, they, they didn't, you know, um, you know, do what was needed to reduce addicted addiction, but pharma is really good. Once they see cash machine of optimization and of expansion and, and, and of trying to reduce any side effects sometimes. And so that, I think that's the, that's the big question mark. And fortunately, because Lily, uh, with Monjoro is going direct to consumer and they're publicly traded. We're going to start to get a sense within the next few quarters of really, is there a D to C and you're going to start to see it, you know, with other digital health companies that are launching, whether it's GLP ones or, or other type of drugs, whether it's Roe or whether it's Hims or whether it's, you know, WW, um, whether it's found, um, you know, there's a bunch of digital health companies. And so it's going to be an interesting time, but I think the key takeaway for the microbiome space is, to, um, to always keep like one eye, you know, looking kind of like wide, keep your periphery open because you never know when that, that next disruption is going to come. And, and the final thing I'll say around GLP ones is there was a huge study that Dr. Eric Topol shared, uh, I think on his Twitter or LinkedIn saying that 
GLP, we're also finding that GLP-1s are highly efficacious around colorectal cancer and other, you know, conditions in which microbiome-based solutions, whether it's from a functional VMS, CPG, or even a drug target perspective are looking to solve, the GLP-1s also solve. So it's going to be, it, that's, that's like a disruptive class of biologics that uh, it, it should be watched uh, moving forward. Yeah. I mean, tons of great information there that like got my head spinning. Um, I think one that's off the top of my, my head of just sticking around is like, you know, with Majoro and, and just kind of that moving into a different channel of distribution, or I guess, uh, you know, looking at it from a different perspective and maybe the, how that's as a whole, again, another, I think blurring or like this converging of like so many different things of, you know, distribution channels on how we think about health as a whole. You know, I, number of years ago was, you know, driving deep into the idea that, you know, pharmacies or the drug channel would have to turn into wellness channels. Um, but it seems like they didn't do a quick enough job at it because grocers decided to like, uh, jump over them and, and kind of take that role within the consumer's mind. They've spent a lot of energy towards positioning themselves in this kind of like retail health perspective. If that is, you know, championing or starting to like, you know, slowly roll out some different layers or, or partnerships that can help with understanding, you know, the food is medicine type of an approach. Um, also just, you know, how, arguably this is really important now, but it's always important. I don't think that it's, we're, we're outside of the bounds of, of what typically is with people on SNAP programs or, you know, how many people are, are continuously investing in if they have access to like HSAs or FSA accounts and like how they're kind of trying to, you know, play this role. And really, I think I, in my mind, I, I always kind of roll this up into this, like thinking that, and this has probably been happening for a while, but like individuals as a whole, maybe this is a prior generation. They thought of themselves just as patients. You know, that's it. They, like whatever the doctor says um, in that particular situation is correct. And, and there's really no, you know, active participation. And then all of a sudden we viewed ourselves as consumers in this like, you know, healthcare market. Like we have, we, we have, some say, or we have some other kind of ways that we're approaching problems, or at least trying to attack it from different ways, or at least the options are there, which I think is highly disruptive to so many different areas. And I know we're talking about this from, you know, the microbiome space, we're talking about this, you know, specifically I opened this up about, you know, retail as a whole, but like, it's just interesting how other institutions are starting to play a different role within this, maybe other Previous institutions are getting like knocked down in, in how maybe people view them or trust them. And now all of a sudden other ones have kind of taken on a role to reposition how a consumer can kind of play within it. I don't know. It, it just seems like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. There certainly is. And it's it's all been unfolding probably within the last, you know, I would say four-ish years, you know. Um, and there's there's a lot of reasons for that. I think to your point, you know, Josh. You know, over the last probably 10 to 15 years, there's been this, sh this shift for a ton of reasons from, you know, uh, reactive to proactive to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, being more preventative focused, you know, optimizing our lifespan, you know, especially now that not only is um, like 
there's reports that our lifespan and the quality of our lifespan is decreased, right? Um, that, you know, once we hit a certain age, like 65, 70, we are staying, we're staying alive longer, but those years are actually not really that fun. You know, you're impacted by polychronic diseases. Um, but as it relates to kind of like this, why, why, why are we seeing a rise in, you know, at least within kind of like retail and, and within kind of what we're being socialized, both retail health, FSA, HSA, SNAP, um, and a lot of it comes down to, I think what we're, what, you know, you've been reporting on a lot, which is kind of like the D to C channel. Like, so channels are starting to shift as far as effectiveness and as far as like margins and as far as, you know, scale and as far as saturation. And, and when you think about, again, big, big picture numbers, right? Um, $4.5 trillion every year and is growing is spent on healthcare in America. And, you know, these businesses like grocery stores, um, you know, they're, they typically made money in two ways. They made it through selling, you know, like grocery items, and then a lot of them attached a pharmacy to it. And both of those businesses are starting to, to kind of like decrease as far as, you know, their revenue contribution or the margins are just not there. And so they're like, how can we, how can we capture some of this $4.5 trillion? Um, because we want to grow. And, also, you're starting to see within health insurance, this opening up of things like so one, I think, really tangible example, you know, to the audiences and the companies that we work with and the people that will be listening is um, very recently, a lot of health insurance plans have started to reimburse uh, their members for registered dietitian visits and for like nutrition counseling. And, the, you know, it, it varies on the amount of like sessions you get from like maybe three to up to 12 per year. Right. So so a a grocery store like a Kroger uh, that has, I think the largest network of in-store nutritionists is like, wow, okay. What if I can leverage reimbursement and get paid to have our in-store nutritionists like do nutrition coaching. And Hey, by the way, we have a gigantic store filled with tens of thousands of products to help you like optimize your diet. Right. So, so there's that. Um, and then with FSA HSA, I think, a lot of digitally native brands are starting to, you know, see the pinch of customer acquisition costs and all that. And there's, you know, just with FSA alone, there's like three plus billion dollars. And now there's tech, again, technology is, is the disruptor here. You have companies like TrueMed, you have companies like Sika Health that are figuring out ways to use some of the edge cases um, to make products that aren't like, 100% down the fairway eligible for these programs. They figured out ways to use technology layers to make it eligible. Um, and it's starting to open up those revenue bundles. So it's a, it's a, it's a novel revenue source. And imagine like for, for you or I that have an FSA or an HSA, imagine like our favorite product no longer coming directly out of our bank account, but coming out of like a separate pool of money that we're like, well, gosh, am I going to spend this whole thing this year? Because like 30% of FSA dollars aren't spent every year and it's a use it or lose it thing. So you have some time periodicities um, that are being pushed. But, but I think fundamentally, you know, brands within the functional health spaces, I think, would find a lot of value in understanding some of these forces that are happening because it could present, you know, different monetization opportunities. It could become a channel that they never even thought existed. Um, and it could potentially be a way to make sure again, 
that they don't get left behind. Because the one thing that's also happening, particularly in kind of this retail health environment is the rise of algorithms. Um, and algorithms to basically say what's healthy and what's not healthy, because if you're in the healthy bucket, then you're eligible for all these other things, these pools of cash that can be used in a grocery store or like on Instacart or, you know, wherever. So um, it's, it's really important to, to understand how your brand fits into these places and how your brand is considered within these algorithms that stores are starting to use. Like, you know, Kroger has their opt-up score, um, which they use. And it's like their prominent thing that they display with products out of from zero to 100. The higher you are, the better. Uh, you know, Walmart has started to explore a partnership with a company called Sifter, um, you know, to, to kind of rank foods uh, and, and products, you know, related to different health conditions so that they can then start siloing that to say, hey, if you're searching for diabetic friendly things, we're just going to use an algorithm and AI to like make the choices a lot simpler. So um, definitely, I think forces that are shifting is 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 something that a lot of brands um, aren't aware of and, and should be. Yeah, I think as a category or I guess a um, subject matter as a whole Yeah. with algorithms, I think that people, you know, it's gotten to a point where I think they are so efficiently running in the background of things that you don't even realize they're there and you think you're making your own decisions. Yet, yeah. you know, there's something that's, subconsciously manipulating, you know, situations. And sometimes that's, that's great. I, I'm, I'm definitely not a, um, technology hater or future. Like I, I consider myself a futurist. I always think of things yeah. in, in the most, um, positive context, even though I always also have to balance that with, you know, what's the uh, negative side of this or what's the way in which somebody yeah. is going to, um, control this in a, in a way that we don't like, but I generally just put that to the side and go, hopefully that doesn't happen uh, unless I'm, you know, I guess engaged with somebody that I have to uh, make sure that we account for that stuff. But, uh, you know, I think algorithms as a whole, and I guess broader than that, like what feeds the algorithms of data is, you know, the, the new gold, the new oil, the new, whatever that, you know, kind of high-end uh, commodity that people want to have access to. And, it, and that feeds them into, you said, if it's algorithms this way, or if it's algorithms, you know, in a more personalized uh, approach, because it's, you know, bringing in so many different data sources and kind of giving you this N1 or close to N1 situation where you can start to, you know, attack your problems in a, in a more unique way. Like we're, we're nowhere near, I guess, where that all goes, but I do think that's super interesting to understand like what eventually we get to, um, the one thing I know in the near term that I always, I continue to struggle with is that, you know, it always seems like we get to this like cyborgy kind of like we're, we're this uh, Terminator combo person uh, situation where then it takes all the fun away from a lot of these um, kind of societal or cultural things that we have with like food and beverage and just like, you know, meeting together in community and whatever. So in the short term, I struggle to like understand how that fully gets up to a, a point in which it breaks through. But like long-term, again, like when we think generations forward and everybody's stuck in digital communities and everybody's kind of thinking about these words reframed or differently, like maybe those things are less um, important or less, um, you know, in a way that would affect change. I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's a wild uh, thing to let your brain just like go down in that path and think about, you know, if this, then that, or that, you know, wherever. No, it definitely is. And I think 
I think there's a few a few interesting learning lessons there. One is to one for brands to remember your brand your brand story and your brand development and your resonance with consumers matters a lot because if you have an incredibly strong brand, people are going to seek your product out whether there's going to be an algorithm or not, right? You know, all these like in all these like ways we can shop digitally whether it's going to walmart.com, you know, you know, to the Kroger, you know, website, to Instacart or whatever, like we can always search for a product directly if we know exactly what we're looking for. And so that's the power of brand. Um, but, you know, I think for, from a, a discovery perspective, it is important to, to understand, I think, how these algorithms are made and how they're being used at different retailers. Because to your point, it's, it's going to, when, when we're, when we're, uneducated about a brand or a product category, it's going to be served up to us. And also I think what's important as well, and it's something that I've seen, you know, in my work, particularly, you know, with Olipop, as far as helping them kind of in this, you know, what we're calling it a beverages medicine space is once I, once, once I started digging into how some of these algorithms are constructed, I realized that they have a lot of good intent but for products that are disrupting a category, um, like an unhealthy category, and again, just to use Olipop as an example, disrupting like people, you know, consuming soda, right? You know, two grams of five grams of sugar, nine grams of fiber versus like 40 to 50 plus grams of sugar in a can of soda and no functional benefits. Um, you know, these algorithms don't understand, but see the thing with Olipop is there's still a little bit of sugar. Yeah. And so for some of these algorithms, because there's a little bit of sugar, you know, it doesn't get, it, it's not considered, you know, within certain product categories as being diabetic friendly or, you know, maybe sometimes even being considered healthy because there's still a little bit of sugar. And so you're like, well, that's totally nuts because we know that it's getting people to stop drinking soda, which is the ultimate goal of what we want. So I think, you know, some of these algorithms, their intent is, is to mean well, but they have to be careful to not be too rigid to filter out products that actually are doing good in this world. Um, and, but would be, you know, by the, by the rigidity of an algorithm kind of excluded and it would be excluded from someone that could, could potentially, you know, benefit from consuming that product, um, whether that's, you know, directly or like indirectly. And while still to your point, you know, a lot of these better for you products are kind of like built on the same nostalgic structure of the things that the unhealthy product, you know, got us to love. And, you know, for people like us, you know, that grew up with an age of so many unhealthy products that now are being better for you, right? Like we have all this nostalgia in our brain of like, what was it like sharing our, you know, Coke around or like our favorite soda, you know, with our friends or our family in special moments, or, you know, sharing like another iconic, but maybe not super healthy product that's being disrupted, whether it's, you know, better for you gummies with fiber, like gummy bears or candies with fiber, or, you know, a snack type of thing. You know, if you have IBS when you couldn't have it when you were a kid, you know, so um, I think, I think that's also important to think about, you know, for these algorithm, these people making algorithms that there's, there's an emotional nostalgic component associated with some of these better for you products that also have, you know, some, some positive effect on community and socialization. Yeah. I think the, to your point, I think, especially some of the early algorithms and things like they, they miss on the general like context of what's yeah. you know around them because ultimately they're, they're hey, Josh. rules, you know, it's like you, you feed them the rules and that's what they where we need. 
you know, kind of that evolution towards AI and machine learning and kind of having the ability to kind of adjust over time to what the overall environment is. And again, those things are obviously running again in the background of a lot of decisions and they will continue to. um, But when a consumer, I think, is either in autopilot mode or they, you know, have an active role within deciding, you know, what they want to do and what they want to eat and drink and take and, and just kind of any decision within their, you know, kind of matrix. Like, I think a lot of people will look for social proof. And I think that that has wildly different, you know, definitions or maybe people's way in which they, you know, value different ones over other ones. I think when we talk about, you know, supplements or VMS or functional, like a lot of times we default to the thought of, you know, this expert, this person and experts, I think a lot of times we think about that have, you know, a bunch of letters after their name or, you know, some type of authority on what they're talking about, which is still extremely important. I still find that, especially in a lot of brands that are close to that and need that, like that is extremely important. I think um, there are platforms and things that maybe help you gain some of that expertise or people kind of giving that thumbs up to say like, oh, this is a great product. We love this one. But on the flip side, I think if we probably took the whole population, most people are getting their social proof from like what their social media and, and that's probably TikTok because they do a extremely good job at feeding you with things that kind of just confirm what you already are thinking. Like they're just like, they make you to the point where you believe that this is the most impressive thing you've ever seen in your life. And it makes you act on that, uh, which is super impressive from their perspective, but also super scary from what we're talking about, because you could quickly get uh, information that maybe is not the most, you know, appropriate or great to act on for somebody to do instead of having maybe some better sets of thumbs up that will give you a, a products that maybe are better suited for what you're looking for. No, definitely. And um, I think that's again, where you have to, you have to have your own autonomy um, and, and hopefully it won't become a world where, you know, everything is ruled by an algorithm um, and that, you know, we won't have this uh, kind of like, you know, very organic product discovery like we used to as far as just walking around a grocery store and enjoying that process like I do, you know, and, and discovering new products or, um, but, you know, it's 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 definitely, I think, a, a component that is is here to stay uh, and will only further, further be used. And I think, you know, the flip side, I, I think there's, there's a lot of like, you know, opinions you can take, but, you know, Professor Scott Galloway, I think really astutely said it, something to the effect, like, we don't want more choice. We just want to be more confident in the choices we make. And, um, and I think so many consumers are sometimes overwhelmed by the sheer amount of choices. Um, and that's potentially where an algorithm could really, could really help them out. Um, but the, the hope is that the algorithm again, won't be so rigid. that It'll exclude something that, that could be actually very beneficial because one little like minute detail, you know, you know, doesn't, doesn't really apply. Well, this was, uh, I'm trying to think of like a really good word to use to like really express, I think how much I enjoyed this episode, but maybe 
you know, such as life, sometimes you can't find the words for, yeah. for how, how, how great it was. But like, I, I'm excited to be able to share this with my audience. I think they're going to love this. So I, I just overall appreciate the time and, and all the insights and information, knowledge that you shared with us, Noah. Really appreciate you having me and, and kind of letting me uh, jump on my soapbox and connect with your community. And, and uh, really, I think, do something that isn't done enough, which is have a little bit wider ranging discussion. So thank you again. Always, always enjoy it. And um, looking forward to next time. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly. 